The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is suspicious, Percy. You won't know who to trust. Let's begin. Welcome back, fellow spy nerds, to the Spies Like Us podcast. That is, of course, the podcast where we discuss the representation of tradecraft on screens, large and small. I believe today's film came out in the theaters. The uh, With me, of course, is uh, my good online pal, Fred Kennedy. Say hi to the nerds, Fred. Hi, fellow nerds. Good evening. <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you tell us what movie we're going to watch real quick? Uh, we're well. looking at the redacted report. And it's the word before report is redacted. The word is torture. And in keeping mm-hmm. with the theme that we've been working on, uh, from the old man to uh, Zero Dark Thirty, we're going to dive in a little deeper to uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. And uh, the two films kind of overlap a bit. Excellent. So just to be clear, the, the official name of the movie is simply The Report. That's yeah. what it's listed on as uh, on Wiki, IMDb, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Uh, it was stylized. It's said to be stylized as the torture report with the word torture redacted. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Amazon released this film, but I did check and it did get a, a big theatrical release. Um, well, I don't know if it was a big one, but it did appear in yeah. theater. So officially a large screen movie. Um it was uh, came out in 2019. Mm-hmm. It covers. Uh, it's a historical um, claiming film, uh, which covers events from 2009 to 2014. Of course, uh, the events of the film are uh, largely cycle around the researching and uncovering of events that happened much earlier. Um, so. We have actually uh, some interesting overlap of of the timeline with our previous episode on um, Zero Dark Thirty, uh, and I just wanted to highlight a few of the the places where the like how the films line up, sort of. Um, obviously, two thousand one is the year of the nine eleven attack, which precis- precipitates nearly all of this uh, for both films. Zero Dark Thirty runs events from 2002 to 2011, culminating with the uh, death of Osama bin Laden. Then the report runs events from 2009 to 2014, culminating in the release of a 6,700-page report on CIA's use of torture. Um, the important thing to keep to keep in mind or keep track of is that the main topic of the report is the same events that were dramatized in the first scenes of zero dark 30 most importantly the ones between 2002 and 2005 um torture report uh is uh produced by vice studios which is interesting to me i bet fred probably doesn't know much or anything about vice Mm -hmm. uh so Canadian started out, I think, as a Canadian uh, youth culture magazine mm. that has since spawned into a respectable m- m- small to mid-sized media empire, uh, including um, they have a podcast where they do some really, really 
incredible journalism uh it, i think rivals anything you get from the networks um they had for instance there was right when ukraine was invaded uh they had people over there they did 45 minutes of nothing but interviews with ukrainian refugees um and that's kind of their style is they just want to give you like the straight stuff like unfiltered and un i don't know uh narrated so that they, it sounds like they got the jump sounds like they got the jump on the regular uh news bureaus oh yeah big time big way. time yeah and i just like i just like their kind of style of of their podcast is they they tend to do that kind of thing where they they didn't bother trying to give like context for the war or talk about how terrible it was or you know question get into the mind of putin they just gave you 45 minutes of interviews with with uh detainees they let the story just tell the story mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. really interested to see the their name on a on a big a big budget a movie like mm-hmm. this um, didn't uh, didn't start out with a distributor. Uh, this, as you might imagine, didn't go through the regular studio sy- system, uh, but uh, it did well at Sundance and was picked up by Amazon. Um, the director Scott Z Burns got his start start in advertising, and he was part of the team that came up with Got Milk. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, he was the producer of Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth mm-hmm. and several of his screenplays. Uh, he does dabble in these kind of politically charged uh, uh, waters. Um, mm-hmm. Several of his screenplays were directed by uh, Steven Soderbergh, who is the producer of this film. And I'm going to go context light on this. We're going to skip over all the actors uh, and stuff because I do want to get into the main material. So just last thing before heading into the briefing room is uh, a park bench check. Uh, I do believe that this movie passes the park bench test of the Spies Like Us podcast uh, because we have a scene at 23 minutes in. There's the scene with Jones meeting with the FBI guy that initially nabbed uh, Al-Qaeda's Zubaida. Actually, uh, check me on that. Did that guy actually turn out to be Al-Qaeda? I'm not sure. Zubaida. Zubaida? Okay. Um, and their conversation takes place, even though it's like right out in the middle of DC, but they are sitting uh, at a water fountain, uh, which even though it's not like said in the film or suggested that they're uh, specifically there to take advantage of the white noise that the, the fountain would produce, um, such a place is a good spot to have a conversation uh, if you don't want to be recorded, uh, that's Sofan, right? The man, the FBI agent is Sofan, correct? Uh huh. Yeah, right. So maybe I should um, actually contrast this with Zero Dark Thirty again, really quick. Sorry, before we get to the tradecraft, both films purport to be uh, dramatizations of historical events. Uh, interestingly, Zero Dark Thirty renamed just about everyone uh, in the film. Uh, possibly for legal reasons. In this film, everyone that's named is based on the person of the same name in that role, except for one, and that's Gina Haspel, uh, who later became the director of the CIA. That's the character played by Maura Tierney, who, for who knows why, I couldn't find a reason, uh, is renamed Bernadette in this could possibly have had something to do with the fact that she was the director of the CIA 
when this film was made. <laughs> um, all that being said, when looking at the tradecraft, I'm not a historian. I'm not a journalist. Uh, so I'm going to try, I've tried to analyze the tradecraft of this film in the same way I would if I was looking at a piece of fiction. So if what they're doing seems like it makes sense, I'll give it a thumbs up. If it doesn't look like it makes sense, I'll give it a thumbs down regardless. So we're going right not, to tradecraft? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. We're in it. All right. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Our main character is played by Adam Driver, and I forget his first name. Uh, I just have Jones written here. Dan, I think. Is it Dan? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Dan Jones. Um, at the beginning of this film, we see how he first makes a strong impression on Senator Feinstein with his work on a set of CIA videotapes that were destroyed in 2005. It's based on that work that Feinstein, uh, who in this uh, time period uh, has the, the position of chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, she gets, based on that work of, of the destroyed CIA tapes, she gets a yay vote on a further investigation of the CIA's Enhanced Interrogation Techniques Program, uh, which she also asks Jones to spearhead. Um, I believe you had some notes on uh, what Jones, uh, how, how he's first introduced to how he's going to be uh, interacting with the CIA. Yeah, supposedly every relevant document he um, is told when he's escorted into the workroom that he'd have access to every relevant document. And um, so a lot of the um, – he finds out, too, that some of the tapes were um, destroyed, so all he could go by are some of the, the CIA's own documents. And when he gets ushered into the room um, – a couple things he's alerted to. Number one, he looks around and he sees the computers, but there are no printers uh, or paper. And he said, at some point, I'll have to have printers and paper. And the guy says, this stuff has to stay here. And uh, he says, again, at some point, I'll have to have that. And he just gets an icy stare. Um, the other thing he finds out from the man who escorts him in there undoubtedly from the CIA mm -hmm. is that um, he uh, that he'll have the stuff it came out in conversation that they'll have to vet things and that kind of alerts him and he says I was under the standing understanding what do you mean vet I was understanding that I'll have I'd have access to all relevant information and he makes the point that comes out later by a CIA director that well we can't have you be looking at everything which is kind of a red flag. Um, I want to mention this room a little bit. This is um, something they call a SCIF uh, in the film. That's uh, uh, acronym SCIF, Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. And although I don't think it's quite as secure as it should be, um, I like the concept. Uh, this hadn't come up uh, in, a, in, a, um, in any of our previous movies. Um, but this this room is like the the sole interface that Jones is going to be allowed to have. Like everything for his investigation has to come out of this room and everything that goes into the room is 
put there by the CIA. Um, again, like after a vetting process that, that you mentioned, um, it's established here in the agreement too. Jones is not going to be permitted to question any of the participants of the EIT, EIT program. The reason they give, of course, is that the DOJ is investigating the program as a potential criminal matter. And initially, they kind of believe, naively, I guess, that DOJ will be working alongside the Senate, Senate Intelligence Committee investigation, but that cooperation never materializes. Uh, so what they were hoping he could uh, wrap up in a year, you know, when he was assuming that... Uh, you know, he'd eventually, it would eventually come out, you know, he'd get uh, interviews or, you know, uh, records of interviews with the people who were actually involved. Uh, he never gets this. So he has to um, compile his report entirely on CIA files, emails, memos. And, uh, and uh, for that reason, I mean, it takes a, a whole five years uh, for him to complete. You mentioned too, you, you, um, in your notes, you say you're, uh, you, you, it's a foreshadowing of trouble that the CIA guy says, well, we're going to have to vet everything, you know, before we give it to you. Um, I noticed though, like, you know, in, I mean, it does seem, it does seem like the film is making me say like, Hey, what the hell, you know, what are they going to hold back? But in point of fact, it doesn't seem like they actually hold back anything, including the Panetta review, uh, which becomes, uh, like, uh, key dramatic point of the film later uh it was just sitting right there for them it's also i remember you asked me this question early on i think you asked me where does he get it and i was under the assumption it was all right there but then i wasn't sure if that um if he got it from that senator you know when they use it to um very ingeniously make that internal study known when the CIA disavows it, um, Senator Udall, I think it was, yeah. So I wasn't sure if, in fact, that he did find it on his own without any vetting, or because I remember you asked me that where he got it, and I thought he I got did. it on his own. But then I thought, well, maybe Senator Udall somehow came up with it. I did um, find the I did find the answer. Okay. Although, although thinking about, it, so I'm going to tell you the the straight answer, and then I'm going to give maybe some of my questions about it um although we want to we want to have a chunk of time to talk specifically about the panetta review later uh right now we'll just say it's a key piece of document in the story of this film and it's a document that even though he he just finds it on their server like it looks it just arrives with the rest of the cia uh memoranda but the cia gets really really flipped out when they find out he has it so I don't know. Now I have now I have questions. Now I'm not sure what happened in reality uh, because you know if they were vetting the if they were vetting the stuff, which I think they should have, uh, you know they should never have given him the Panetta review if they didn't want him to have it. Uh, if they the way they get flipped out, like it seems like they don't have any record of having given it to him. So it's possible. I'll just put a tiny pin in possible. Maybe he didn't get it from that skiff. Maybe it was passed to him. By some source and the film just does not want to that's and, and the only logical there. source would be that is that senator udall because he when they go to that senate hearing except except i i know for sure he gives it to the senator okay i thought so too but i couldn't think of any other way 
Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, that's that's basically uh, the setup. That's that's his job. He's going to spend five years. Although I don't know if we want to go. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we want to go toward uh, when the new CIA uh, officer is confirmed. Uh, he has some argument about some of the conclusions, even though he says EIT was regrettable and so on. And he first of of all says he thought it did uh, give some information that the IT program did uh, give some information that saved lives. And he was trying to say that it wasn't as bad as the report made it out to be. And then when um, the Adam Driver character says, well, you've seen, I've got all my reports from, from CIA people. This is all CIA information. And then he says something about the whole vetting thing, which comes back again and says, you don't think we give you everything. All right. So, which makes me think that either they did vet or the CIA director was lying. I know Todd, you think he was lying. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. That's going to be part of the uh, lack of accountability after the fact. Um, which well, is yeah, I brought it. Really- I brought it up now because it it goes back to that whole question of was there vetting and did he have everything that kind of a thing and I so that's why I, I threw that in uh, at this point. Sure. Well, I I guess we don't and can't necessarily know, but given that he did well, I mean he's going through like millions of documents to be honest. But uh, if there were major things missing, I would think they would make themselves known by their absence. Um, somehow Jones is looking at the records of uh, hundreds at least right of, of detainees that went through this program mm-hmm. um, the film focuses on three specifically and um, even though he probably was finding out different things about the different three at different times uh, for to make a more compact narrative both in the film and in our podcast they kind of take them one at a time we've got uh, Zoo Zubaida, Gulraman, and he shows up in Zero Dark Thirty. He was the connection that supposedly KSM had with Bin Laden. Okay, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and uh, definitely believed to be one of the uh, principal planners of nine eleven. Do I have that right? Yeah, and I think he was that one infamously that we kept seeing in the papers that looked like Bluto with the wife beater T shirt on, and you know, you know who I mean. I think that was he. Okay. We kept seeing his picture. I think that was KSM. So, yeah, let's start with Zubaida. Um, and he's presented here as, like, basically the first detainee. So if you're going to tell this story, obviously start at the beginning. Um, he's arrested by the FBI in 2002. Um, CIA does not seem happy about the fact that the CIA seems to have uh, uh, gotten, you know, ahead of them in grabbing this guy and seem to go really overboard in interrogating him. Um, we have these two contractors, uh, previously air force personnel, uh, yeah, psychologists. Who, who later, yeah, went into the field of psychology, uh, Mitchell and Jessen. And, uh, I want to say, I have to underline, like they come off as extraordinarily slimy in this film. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, Maybe. And the CIA is too quick 
to accept their questionable science. Right. And like Tim Blake Nelson says at some point, like what science? (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. So these are the guys that come up with all the tech, all the techniques and, and uh, demonstrate them uh, to the CIA who then adopts them. Uh, And that includes again, all the hits, uh, stress positions, loud noises, sleep deprivation, uh, denial of uh, proper toiletry necessities, uh, and of course, infamously waterboarding. Um, And like I said, the film, if the film really is painting a a clear villain, uh, I think it's these two guys. Yeah. And and especially, I think, getting back to Sufan, right? Or they talk to him. Sufan stresses and and the CIA gets bent out of shape when they find out that he got the first turn. The Sufan, the FBI agent, stresses that the way to interrogate is to develop, develop a rapport with these guys, right? Not to torture, not to hurt, to develop a rapport. And, you know, um, he talks about they had a box. They told him his house was bugged. He produced a box full of blank cassette tapes, which were blank. But he made him think that they had all these tapes on him and knew that he was connected. And his point was, we got further with that than EIT. And the CIA knew that. And the CIA, although when they found out, they were enraged that um, you know they even got first first hit on this guy um Mm -hmm. and then at the risk of spoilers we find out at the end that the CIA comes a lot comes to the same conclusion that Sofan said at the very beginning you have to develop rapport with these guys Uh, it's really annoying because um you know that building of rapport is actually like what the CIA does do well um you know, in the development of, 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 of willing assets or, assets. Uh, you know, not necessarily willing, but uh, even coerced assets. Right. Um, Especially foreign but there's ones. that whole element. And, and when they're first faced with, you know, this situation and their, their new task to like extract information from detainees, somebody makes the point in this, in the film, like, this is not, this isn't what, how, how do we do that? This is not what we do with the CIA. And that's why they have to bring in these contractors. And I wanted to make the point that, uh, I think number two coming off not too good in this film is Bernadette, a.k.a. Gina Haspel, who uh, more than anyone else plays the uh, trusting and defensive of the two contractors uh, and their methods. Yeah, she's an apologist. The story that's told by the CIA in their reports doesn't make sense. Uh, they claimed at the time that he was uh, number three in Al-Qaeda, and uh, that wasn't true. And they also, in their own uh, reports, according to Jones, uh, didn't learn, never learned anything from the EIT and the torture that he was subjected to. And it was, it was that labeling of him as third or fourth in Al-Qaeda that got the justification and the green light to go ahead with the EIT program and that they could go harder. So, and what that was false. Um, and it turned out that he wasn't even an officer in Al Qaeda, but that got them in that, that lie that he was third or fourth ranked in Al Qaeda to go ahead with 
the justification they gave to the Justi Justice Department to go harder with those two Air Force psychologists. Yeah, and they only had, uh, Jones says later, you know, they only had one source that claimed he was number three in Al-Qaeda, and that guy later yeah. recanted. Exactly. It goes back to what I said before. Um, it just seems so unnecessary. And I go back to, um, you know, how so many times we say, oh, that's 2020, as if we didn't have any other way of learning the truth until we made that mistakes. This shows us that there were voluminous, including the CIA's own internal report, uh, information back to the 70s that said, not only was it didn't it work, but it was inhumane. Um, and everything that the whole FBI was saying about uh, developing a rapport, they had a voluminous amount of information that was at their fingertips, and they went ahead and did it anyway. That's what really struck me as the sad part, going to the old adage that is what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Nathan Raymond, a physician's assistant who uh, uh, was involved in the Zubaida uh, proceedings, uh, reaches out to Jones, uh, you know, privately and, you know, don't quote me, don't use my name. He, he like just grabs a quick conversation with him in a, you know, in a parking garage. Yeah. And how many times have parking garages been used from deep throat to virtually every other, you talk about park benches, parking garages, yeah. I think are the next park bench, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Um, we should start counting those two. And we definitely have a parking garage in this, uh, yeah. a ma major scene at the end of this film. Well, anyways, um, Nathan Raymond, uh, he tells Jones that the, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't waterboarding correctly. Waterboarding is supposed to give the patient, the, uh, the subject, sorry, I don't want to say patient, the subject, the impression that they're drowning. Um, but he says, no, the guy was actually drowning. Right. Um, and uh, notice too, you know, and Jones asks him about the doctor's thing. Remember I talked about this a little in Zero Dark Thirty. Like I, I said, like, I believed the, the CIA would really only do this in like, uh, you know, uh, kind of clinical conditions uh, with a physician present here. I find out like, no, that's not true because uh, like uh, Nathan uh, Raymond tells Jones, uh, the AMA will not pr allow doctors to participate mm -hmm. in EIT. Um, and so, you know, a physician's assistant, which is what Raymond is, is like the closest thing they can get to yeah. that kind of thing. And, and they're virtual say, doctors. Yeah, that was just a technicality that the CAA and the AMA was dealing with. You know what I'm saying? Those guys are virtual doctors. What do you mean? When you say virtual, you mean they're just as good they as? Know enough about, they know enough about medicine where they could make, okay. like he knew that that was drowning, right? They know yeah. enough about medicine that they can make doctoral type of observations and decisions is all. It was just one of those mm -hmm. technicalities that and loopholes that they used to... Uh, yeah, to get around it of many. I just want I just want to say that I think that the to to anyone in the CIA, the fact that the AMA uh, will not allow doctors to participate in those procedures should have been like that's should have been well, all the big red flag that they should have needed. What's the vow? The vow is do no harm, right? right? They have to take that vow. And I'm not sure if a if a physician assistant has to take it. Maybe that's it right there. You know, the vow of the it's that's a Hippocratic oath, right? They take a vow to do no harm. That's right. So maybe that's, that's right. it and, right there, Todd. And our slime balls, our slime balls, uh, Mitchell and the other guy are claiming that the techniques, in fact, do no harm. 
and mm-hmm. and the CIA is is standing on that. Well, in that case, like, why are you taking the word of these two psychologists who have never actually been involved in actual interrogation ever? They had no experience. The only experience they had was in running programs, training Air Force personnel how to resist interrogation. Right. So it's That's not like, the uh, in, that EIT, or is it the evasion? Oh. Uh, evasion something yeah and they reversed engineered the invasion something in other it's, words it's, when a pilot uh-huh. or an airman goes down survival it's evasion like SEER. resistance yes yes yeah yeah seer seer it's uh survival evasion uh resistance and escape right so they so it's not like they didn't know anything you know so they had i mean they had that level of uh expertise that could have fooled a credulous CIA into thinking they knew what they're talking about. Well, the other but, thing, a psychologist doesn't have any medical. A psychiatrist does. A psychiatrist can prescribe medication. He's an MD first, right? But a psychologist is not a doctor. Right. And those guys were psychologists. Uh, you have notes on uh, a rebuff to Cheney. Well, what I say is, in a rebuff to Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Catherine Bigelow, okay, who directed Zero Dark Thirty, who allege that it all started in 2002 when Abu Zubaydah and a detainee they called Riyadh the facilitator, who tipped them off to Abu Ahmed in Kuwait, who had ties to bin Laden. The movie through Jones says that didn't happen. What really happened was, number one, the CIA was on Al-Qaeda's phones, emails, and identity long before they captured any detainees and before they even had an EIT program. Number two, Zubaida told us Al-Qaeda had nothing to do with bin Laden, same with KSM and others. Then there was a public rollout memo that stated that the agency wanted their PR people to connect bin Laden raid to Intel, obtained via, by way of EITs before it even happened, which is kind of crazy. And the CIA lied to both Bush and the Obama administration about the EIT program yielding intelligence that got us bin Laden. So those were the big rebuffs to, like I said, Catherine Bigelow, Rumsfeld, and Cheney. Right. Just tying that into Zero Dark Thirty in their uh, narrative, uh, it's Abu Ahmed that leads them to Zobaida, that leads them to uh, interrogation. Al- Al-Kuwaiti. Yeah, uh, through, through EIT. Gets, right, gets gets them yeah. the courier. And in this film, the character of Daniel Jones is saying uh, none of that none of that is, is right. Uh, and although in his timeline, Zero Dark Thirty hasn't come out yet, <laughs> right. uh, he's he's already uh, flagging. Well, they show the clip. Is. Yeah, they show the they show the brief clip of the movie. Do you remember in the in the torture report? I do. I do. Yeah. And that was kind of a, I think, slam. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a knowing uh, jab at them. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, because he goes up to that whiteboard, um, Jones does, and starts refuting all of those claims made by those folks. Right. Um, getting back to the um, uh, physician assistant. Um, sure. In the end, when he has the conversation with, uh, what's the woman's name? You said they changed their name, her name. Uh, Gina Haspel is renamed as Bernadette in this film. Right. And she puts up her, you know, apology, apologist uh, 
role about those two crackpots. And what I thought was interesting is his last argument is what the military brass uses. And I call it the John McCain argument, who they use in a real clip at the very end of the movie. In other words, the military brass has always been against torture for the sake of our military people when they get captured, right? We're supposed to follow the Geneva Convention rules on captivity and on war and on capture. And if one of our prisoners starts to invoke that, a la John McCain in the Hanoi Hilton, we will be rebuffed and laughed at if it's known that we don't honor that and that we use torture uh, in Abu Ghraib or Gitmo or other places. So he makes that final argument that I call the military brass John McCain argument. And I think it's noteworthy that at the very end, they show the real John McCain uh, at the very end, because we know the hell he went through at the Hanoi Hilton. Right. So that's, uh, that's Zubaida, uh, who's just presented as our, our first detainee, someone that just never needed to be uh, interrogated in the first place. Uh, and they're in, right. In, the in FBI had a crack at him and they, they got further, right. Then with their methods of developing rapport. It does. It does look like they would have gotten to the truth a lot faster. And the truth, it looks like would have been, this guy is actually of very low value and, and yeah. doesn't really know anything that uh, we need to know uh, this bad. So that's our case of a guy that really shouldn't have been in the program in the first place. Our next mm -hmm. case that they highlight here is of um, Ghul Rahman. Uh, he's shown as a case of the mishandling of the EIT program in that it led to his death. Yeah, a minor um, detail. And they were all, that was one of the big, that was one of the big things of uh, John Yu and also those two Air Force guys is that if it doesn't work, right, they shouldn't die, right? If it works. <laughs> so their logic comes back at them. And they, and I think uh, Jones makes that point. You know, um, if they die, it doesn't work because you're not supposed to kill them or give internal harm to organs and so on. So right away with his death kind of puts hole in the whole rationale to begin with. Right. And here's an interesting one, too, in, in regards to the access to the documents that Jones had, because in this film, they notice Ghul Rahman's case mainly because of the absence of documentation. They notice a disappearance of him from the records. So in point of fact, at what, whatever they did cobble together and put together the story of what happened to Ghul Rahman uh, possibly came from other sources, which... Uh, by the way, would have been like a, it would have technically been a violation of the agreement between uh, the Senate and the CIA. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, he asks, as you say, the legal rhetorical question also why of, of Feinstein, why do they need to cover it up if they're following standard operating procedure? Why right. didn't they tell the committee? Why didn't Dies they tell of hypothermia. you? Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, it's a very ugly looking cover up uh, on, on the part of the CIA. I'm kind of, I'm still not quite sure why this isn't like the, one of the big key things uh, that the movie focuses on. It just, I mean, a lot of this movie is so much of like Jones sitting down and telling Feinstein terrible shit. Um, 
in a way that it's 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 kind of hard to maintain like audience interest when um, you know yeah yeah well the thing i i know and i and i've read some of the criticisms of that and i've had i've heard t- different people say oh it's you know most of it's people sitting in rooms talking but what they're talking about to me was riveting and i call it a morality play and i said from the beginning you know, you're going to lose some audiences because there's no car chases, right? There's no shoot 'em ups, right? But I just think it's a morality play. And if you look at it on that basis, yeah, you're going to lose some audiences because you don't have all those action scenes. But on its own, I think it's a very good morality play because it has to do with who we are, what we strive to be, what our ideals are, right? And when we break 100%. away from those ideals, what do we do about it? You know, so... Um, that's kind of my take on the fact that, you know, it's a, about a lot of people talking and no car chases. hundred percent. And that's, um, um, that's a feature. That's a, uh, a facet of movie making. I don't want to struggle for the exact right word, uh, where, you know, Sundance, Sundance, it started out as a celebration of independent film. It still is that it's where, it's where people take movies that they were going to make anyways, even if it didn't connect with an audience, yeah. this, this, this film wanted to be made. And there's people that will fund those projects. And then, and then they take it to Sundance. And you know what? If it does well there, then maybe they find a distributor. You know, maybe someone has enough faith in the, in the product. But it is definitely, you know, as opposed to, for instance, like a Marvel movie or a Disney movie where they already, they already have counted the popcorn receipts and the ticket yeah. receipts before they even start making the and, film. And, and I cynically <laughs> also say a lot of these movies are preaching to the converted anyway. The people who should see it won't see it. <laughs> and that, that's kind of another caveat. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I do really like this scene, though, uh, where when um, Feinstein asked Jones, like she says, are you, uh, it sounds like you're accusing the CIA of murder and he doesn't come out with a flat. Yes. But you know, his, his response causes her to leave the room in a very interesting fashion. I don't know if you noticed this, uh, yeah. really great performance by uh, national treasure, Annette Benning. Uh, she says, uh, this is all very disconcerting. I'm going to have to review this later and very, very mm-hmm. quickly like removes herself from the room. I like that subtlety of that performance where this is a senator that realizes like she has just stepped into something that politically she is not ready to hear any more about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this goes back to plausible den- deniability, uh, which Condoleezza Rice and others uh, help Bush achieve. Right, that whole plausible deniability with oh, yeah. John Yu and the whole um, rationalization and hair splitting of torture that John Yu came up with, um, so that so that Bush could say that he knew nothing about it. Right. Well, tell us more about uh, John Yu because it's the, at this part of the film, at least, you know, the film does jump around in time, but it tries to keep kind of a logical uh, a narrative. It seems to be. Whether or not it's true in the timeline, in the timeline of the movie's narrative, it seems to be after Ghoul Rahman's death that they're consulting with you. And and who is John Yu also, by the way? He's with um, the Office of Legal Counsel, 
Okay. I think, he's I think a lawyer he's white, that's brought I think he's in. White, white, white House. Would, I mean, what branch would that be? I'm pretty um, sure that's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. He's from the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, he's a lawyer. And he has brought in to um, give a narrower, uh, hair splitting redefinition of torture and interrogation techniques that. Uh, Bush didn't learn about anyway until four years later. Um, He argues that because it's not of the intent of the interrogator to cause severe pain or suffering, right, which is how torture is described in this official memo he has, 2340, but to gain intelligence and save American lives, that it's not torture. He zeroes in on the word severe and says that 2340 doesn't define severe. So he then looks and finds another definition, which is in a Medicare statute that says severe pain and suffering is acute symptoms that place the individual in serious jeopardy and are hard to endure. Then he takes a big leap, what I think is a major medical jump in conclusion by you. He says, um, the rationale he conclu- uh, that constitutes torture is that the damage must rise to the level of organ failure impairment of bodily functions or death, which of course does occur with detainee Gul Rahman, right, who died of hypothermia in 2002 after the CIA interrogators interrogators left him changed to the ground overnight in 36 degrees Fahrenheit cell. Jones says that their legal argument, Jones comes back after he hears this and said their legal argument said intense interrogation wouldn't cause bodily harm. So how long does Gul Rahman have to be dead for? And in other words, he turns their own logic on their head. Um, and then you goes on to say that the president could do virtually anything if he believed it was to save American lives or a plane from crashing into a building. Like, and I don't necessarily want to name some of his examples, but. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll skip those. Uh, um, they're pretty gruesome. He said it. He said, if our, in our opinion, if torture provides unique intelligence that saves lives and doesn't cause lasting harm then it's legal for the president to order it. And then he defines ah. unique as intelligence that couldn't be obtained any other way. Right, which is its own kind of Ouroboros bullshit logic. Uh, I had this note for later, but I feel like I'll bring it up now. You know, uh, Haspel does have a at least a tiny little bit of come to Jesus moment where she comes up with the the observation that like, so if there was no, because of the definition of unique intelligence, meaning you couldn't get it any other way, that kind of means you can't find out if what you did was legal until after you did it. Right. Right. Um, and that does at least. Raise 183 her, later. Her. And then they go back to the FBI's, you know, in the end, I, it's almost like they glibly and flippantly say, oh Yeah. I think it's better now that we use rapport, which the FBI was saying right from the beginning. You know, I just, that was so glib in the end when they, you know, like, it's like, oops, you know? Right. <laughs> um, our third detainee is KSM. Again, that is Khalid Sheikh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, and his is a case of, maybe actually having the right guy, right? And an important guy. Uh, but the um, the techniques they use being absolutely uh, ineffective and unwarranted. Um, 
they find it first of all okay jones finds out that the cia knew about ksm since 1995 so mm-hmm. any of the claims that they uh, uh learned about him and his importance uh from torturing other detainees well that goes back to 9-11 he starts out by saying that's when they remember the whole connecting the dots right um he goes way back to 9-11 saying basically that the CIA knew about him back then and his connection to bin Laden, but they didn't connect the proverbial dots. So he goes way back to that even before the detainee uh, project. Yeah, I'm sure he was in the files that the outgoing uh, Clinton administration was supplying the incoming Bush administration. You see the guy in this film flipping out uh, when 9-11 happens, being like, what the fuck? What did we tell them when they were coming in? We told them, you know, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden determined to attack within the United States, and the Bush administration completely ignored all that stuff and and well, got to work on. Well, uh, well, that we also found out about the turf war between FBI and CIA. And in hindsight, here we go, twenty twenty hindsight. If they had shared information, right, they could have connected those proverbial dots of those guys that were taking one way uh, airplane pilot lessons, right. They had all the information, but but they jealously, the CIA and FBI weren't sharing their information. That was a big part of the 9-11 report, and supposedly that was going to be cleared up after that. Right. We see. I see in your notes, uh, you know, a reminder that uh, a, a CIA officer who was handling a unnamed asset, we call him Asset X in here in Islamabad uh, claimed to have direct KSM, but was turned down when he asked for a measly $2,000. Um, you know what that pinch. reminded me of? What's that? That Moroccan intelligence. Remember that got supposedly got lost in the shuffle when those brothers with the beard, remember that? I, I think her name was Debbie uh, came and said, yeah. Oh, this mm-hmm. is Moroccan intelligence about the brothers with the beard and that they got the wrong one. Right. It reminded me of that, that they had taken another look at. That's what that reminded me of. Also, the uh, how they ignored the intelligence that bin Laden was in a cave in Tora Bora. Remember, they dismissed that, too, which turned out to be true. Right. And, you know, the the two thousand dollars that they could have handed over would have been a lot cheaper. Yep. Uh, than, than the cost of this program, which I believe uh, ends up, I think the contractors walk away with like $80 million or something yep. on that. And uh, Yeah, when they pay wow. him later, they, they pay him later and he sends a text to a CIA handler saying, I'm with KSM. And yeah, it had nothing like to do just with like that. Yeah. Just like that, instant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, number one, KSM told them what they wanted to hear to make the torture stop, which is another argument against torture. They watered him 183 times and only then concluded KSAM may never be forthcoming. Again, the FBI could have told them that. Everything they got from him was either a lie or something they already had. Feinstein rhetorically asks, if it works, why do you need to do it 183 times? And Jones hopes, this is the naive part, that when the report comes out, that maybe, just maybe, people will finally see that the answer to Feinstein's question above, which is, like I say, kind of naive. 
Yeah, I think the 183 times number, which is not disputed, uh, is incredible in face of the uh, in the face of the CIA's story about them believing that what they were doing uh, was in any way effective or necessary. Uh, there's there's no way I, I, I it beggars belief to me uh, and goes to the lack of accountability in here or something, but uh, just that number all by it's just that number all by itself. If, I mean, if every time they waterboarded him, they got some, some new piece of useful in, intelligence, then I guess, but they didn't. And, you know, at, at some point, at some point, when do you decide that it's, it's, ineffective well, i think that single number literally destroys all the cia's arguments well, and it's worse than that too todd because <laughs> add that to the internal memo right the panetta report right add yeah. that to the 1970s study of the cia that said torture doesn't work right uh and add that to what the fbi said there's a like a laundry list of things that they already knew even before the 183 so that's why I keep coming back to you can never say, oh, 2020 hindsight. No, <laughs> you had hindsight. You yeah. had to, you can't just rub it off and you chose to do it anyway. That's the cynical part of it for me. You chose to do it anyway. And I made the parallel to, to the, the Pentagon Papers. Um, Pentagon Papers of Vietnam McNamara requested a study of the Vietnam War from start to finish or from the 1945 into the 60s. And the whole report told them that it was not only unwinnable, but the regime we were backing was illegitimate. And they still went ahead and did it anyway. So that's why I, I'm, I'm really cynical about a lot of things. People say, oh, if we only knew or hindsight. No. So many times they do know better and they go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, that's the part that really bo bothers me about so many of these screw-ups. Well, in our next section, we're going to be talking about what I call the Swiss cheese of accountability uh, that's in here. I, decide, I, I decided it would be smart for us to talk about accountability in two ways. First of all, what was going on before and during the lack of accountability there. And then I want to talk about the lack of accountability afterwards when some of the facts start coming out. But just before we get there, I'm going to again say same note I had in uh, Zero Dark Thirty. I think that the depictions of the torture rooms are actually a little bit absurd and unbelievable. Uh, they're portrayed as being these dingy, poorly lit, highly unsanitary dungeons. I don't know the reality of what happened, but uh, I, I find it hard to believe. I find it much easier to believe that the directors are finding this to be uh, just more psychologically gripping to audiences. Uh, because me, if I have a prisoner and I think he's a very high value, I don't want him dying of a fucking infection. <laughs> Yeah. Well, part of this could be written off as the the cheap uh, production standards too, right? This was a low budget film, so maybe that was part of their um, not doing a good job on those torture rooms or whatever. That's I don't true. Know. That's true. And also, you know? uh, yeah, 
pretty pretty small budget. I think they started out with uh, thinking they were going to have twenty six million, cut that to eighteen, and uh, shot the entire film in just twenty five days. Yeah. So again, most of it was a lot of guys talking, you know. So when they try to do something a little beyond that, maybe they weren't up to it. Whether it's a car chase or a torture scene. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta you gotta have some uh, some production some, values, some some spice in the soup. Um, especially when the, the subject matter here really could very, it's, it's hard subject matter to dramatize. It really yep. is. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's a testament to the filmmakers, uh, and the actors, uh, that they do as good a job as they could of basically almost an, what could have been just an unending series of Jones telling Diane Feinstein some scary shit. Um, yeah. So accountability that, that, that you know the road that they built the bridge that they built between <laughs> uh not torturing people and torturing people is so shaky and so full of holes but i do want to talk about it and and talk about how i think this happened uh but very early on and throughout the movie jones is seeing the blanking out of important bridges to accountability um it, Strong examples being like uh, keeping Powell in the dark. You know, what was that that memo? Um, I think it, it came from Cheney or, or, or somebody related to the vice president's office. Like, we can't tell Powell about this because he will flip the fuck out. <laughs> well, they, humiliated, also, they already humiliated yeah. him when they made him do that. Um, what was it? Uh, uranium sure. cake thing at the UN, you know, about Iraq big time and uh it tarnished his his before then uh you know uh really pure reputation so and i they, guess they, they knew better than to let him know about that and and they're building uh they're building barriers between them and george bush uh because yeah. you know there seems to be an impetus to not do anything that uh would put the president's you know re-election plausible plausible deniability and they and he had it he was able and to that say to that me, he knew nothing and that to me seems to be the honest honestly like the source of the way john Yu um looked at the program like yeah. he just he just came up with an, an analysis that meant that in no possible scenario could you blame my boss the president well uh, i think they, they I think they had a trial run with Iran-Contra. Remember, supposedly, Reagan didn't know about the arms for hostages deal with Iran. And um, people were questioning that, right? Let alone, um, you know, dealing with Iran and then selling the proceeds of that money to the Contras in South America. So I'm sure they took a page out of that book. Whether you believe, and there was a big question about whether Reagan knew about that. I don't know. You were probably probably pretty young during that time, but uh, that whole plausible to bit, uh, deniability was huge back then, and I'm sure they were very aware of it um, in this one too. Condoleezza Light, Condoleezza Rice didn't want them to tell. Now, blowback, basically, and you see this a lot with the CIA, um, is something that goes on beyond bad tradecraft. I know we have our tradecraft, but what I think blowback is, is um, 
usually represent some long-term unanticipated damage that was self-inflicted by the CIA, of which there are far too many. Now, in The Old Man, the blowback that the CIA did was they armed those warlords against the Soviet Union, but then it blew back on them with Osama bin Laden and his, and his crew having weapons, and that was a whole other uh, thing. So that's blowback. When the CIA does something and it comes back, it's a self-inflicted wound. So what I view as blowback here is what Adam says. Jones, Jones points out that instead of saving lives, what the CIA actually did while practicing EIT was made it impossible to prosecute a mass murderer like KSM because if we did to him, if what we did to him came out in a court of law, the case would be over. And the other thing was the guy who planned 9-11 was turned into recruiting tool due to his EIT tri treatment for a war we'll st we're still fighting. Um, like so many of the prison prisoners in Gitmo, who if they weren't terrorists, <laughs> would be when they came out, right? That's why... <laughs> That's why Lindsey Graham and others are saying there's no way. That's why there's, they're in this purgatory because there's no way to release them now. They were, I remember they first tried to try them in a court in New York, then they moved them to get, Gitmo. So I think it was true. They swept up a lot of innocent people who weren't terrorists, but if they were let go now, they would be. So again, those are two examples of what I call blowback. When the CIA does something... And it comes back to haunt them in another way. And it's usually a self-inflicted wound. Yes. Um, and, and like on, I say, that's, that, that goes beyond bad tradecraft because it's more of a permanent thing. You know, blowback is more of a longer lasting thing than bad tradecraft. Yeah, yeah. But I think I, it, it definitely factors in uh, when, when I give plus and minus spy points around here. Um, I see my further note here on the CIA getting their justification from John Yu again, as I just mentioned, like John Yu's just there to make sure the president is, is insulated legally. Um, uh -huh. to their credit, the CIA guys seem to have gone to him specifically to like, you know, make sure like, Hey, are we, are we doing this right? Are we breaking the law? Are we doing unconstitutional bullshit? Um, but again, he's got that motivation of giving them. Uh, you know, as much leash as they want. But the problem there to me is that it, in that case with them getting that opinion from John Yu, if you think about it, it actually kind of becomes unpatriotic for these guys to not use the enhanced interrogation techniques. You follow? Yeah. This is a big problem yeah. with the account, with the accountability, with the, with the different agencies is um, you know, um, I think, I think everyone up and down the chain, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, stories of the, the fucked up, like, uh, uh, automobile factories in Detroit where they had the whole policy of just throw it, throw it over the wall to the next person in the assembly line and let them deal with it. In this uh -huh. case, I think it's more of a case of, uh, like the people at the ground in this whole chain of things, you know, from the actual agents all the way up to the president, I think the, the agents at the bottom of the chain are assuming that the president is 
completely read in on what they're doing. He's not. There are many, many, many uh, holes and and disconnects uh, between the two. Uh, You know, the president is, you know, Bush is assuming that, you know, what he's hearing uh, is, is, you know, valid. He's, everyone's going based on what they're being told by the person next to them. But Mm -hmm. it's, it almost too like a game of telephone, you know, with the exception of Cheney and Addington and that whole fucking thing where they're trying to keep Powell and Bush out of it. I don't think, I don't think any of it's really intentional, you know, uh, like, like uh, it's not a masterminded plot to uh, uh, obfuscate and conceal. I think that in reality, like almost everyone here is just doing their job for the country as a public servant, as best as they know how. Except the CIA knows. Okay. They knows when the shit hits the fan. Okay. Because of that very plausible ability of the president and the upper administration, <laughs> it's going to be their head on the chopping block. That's why this see, and the CIA knows that in 1978, there was something called the church committee and it was a Senate investigation of all the dirty deeds the CIA did from assassination to tap down Castro's to, to overthrowing governments in Central America to all their dirty deeds and the shit hit the fan. So they know with that plausible deniability, yeah, it insulates the upper guys, but the CIA know that it's going to be their heads that roll when the shit does come out, hits the fan. Because Bush can say, gee, I don't know. I didn't know, right? Yeah, 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 a hundred percent. I mean, at the end of the day, nobody nobody steps forward and takes responsibility. Uh, and here's another stuff, thing which- I don't think we talked about that that um, Senator Udall couldn't believe. We find out that as early as 2001, the CIA's legal team circulated a memorandum describing a novel legal defense for their officers who might engage in the T word torture. And as a senator observes to Jones, actually uses the word torture in the memorandum in spite of it being of there being laws against it. And before the agency had a single detainee. Uh, so Jones's rhetorical question is to the senator was, how did the CIA know they needed to torture people before they even had one? So they in that memorandum, they actually used the T word, even though they knew it was illegal. So there's another thing to add to my list of. Hindsight's twenty twenty. No, you know, I mean, and and the senator says they actually use the word torture. Yeah. So there's no excuse. Yeah. I think it's a. I think it's a major case for. I don't know. Somehow, it's hard to imagine you know bureaucracy as as sprawling as the United States government, but really, every single public servant needs to be their their own advocate for the constitution of the United States, you know, and, and this, this, this lofty ideal, uh, is so quickly set by the wayside by this, uh, frenzied overreaction. I call it an overreaction to, uh, to nine 11. Um, well, look what we, we've seen it. Um, our two greatest presidents, I think Lincoln and Roosevelt both committed bad deeds during war. Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, right? Roosevelt put all those Japanese Americans in concentration camps, right? 
and they weren't Japanese, they were Japanese Americans. So in times of war, civil or other, otherwise, we do crazy, irrational things. And like I say, those two, Lincoln and Roosevelt, FDR, I th my opinion is they were our two greatest presidents because they were at the helm when the country could have gone to shit. But they still committed grave errors, uh, civil, civil liberty-wise, both Lincoln mm -hmm. and Roosevelt. Yeah. So in times of war, people panic and they do crazy things. Look at the Patriot Act, too, that Bush tried to push through by... Um, you know, saying that people, you know, people's you library what cards. What do you mean? Try to. We definitely, we definitely got a yeah. Patriot Act. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's and it's full of some very uh, loony stuff. Um, so, yeah. So there's there's that there's that failure in the chain of accountability. Um, I honestly, like, I honestly think the agents in the in the room, with the exception of those two fucking assholes, uh, really felt like what they were doing was approved and understood at every step on the ladder all the way up to the president. And I honestly believe that the president believed that everything was, that was happening was uh, approved and figured out. And, and that if just, if that, you know, if those, if, you know, when you do a, some, uh, what is it? Iron filings that they all line up in the correct way. When you, when you get uh, put a magnet near them, you know, if, if all these iron filings were lined up, this shit wouldn't have happened, you know? It, it would have been mm -hmm. it would have been clear, but uh, everything's just like again this what I call the Swiss cheese of accountability. Now, that's 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 our discussion of the accountability, like before and during the accountability failure after some of the facts come out are equally weird and and definitely uh, featured in this film. Uh, this is our section uh, titled The Cover-Up and PR Damage Control. Um, now, in 2004, the events of Abu Ghraib became public. And that was, uh, uh, check me if I'm wrong, that was army personnel abusing prisoners of war. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, instead of backing off, of that, uh, the CIA just really doubled down on, on their own techniques. And, you know, when, when the bad stuff started to hit the public light, there was no attempt to, uh, come forth immediately come forth and, and apologize and condemn, but to find further reasons and further rationales to say, no, this was important. This was necessary. And it's around 2004 that I think, that waterboarding enters the public conscience. Um, mm -hmm. Very especially in 2011, with bin Laden's death, uh, people like Rumsfeld and Cheney, as well as a bunch of others, uh, use that opportunity to rush to the microphones and rush onto the uh, cable TV channels and use that fact of well we got bin laden so what are you complaining about that's their that's they see that as like oh okay now we have a big shield <laughs> that'll just protect us from everything we did because we can claim that it was all needed uh to do this very important thing um as i mentioned before i don't think killing bin laden was nearly as important as uh the united states government did um and uh, 
also along along the way here, you know, DOJ was did investigate, uh, but eventually just rolled over, filed no charges at all. More uh, more lack of accountability. And and as you said, 2012, right, you know, just right the year after Osama bin Laden's uh, killed, uh, Zero Dark Thirty comes out, which is uh, probably I don't think the way Catherine Bigelow intended, but it turns out to be a big. Uh, fuel for the propaganda that the EIT program was uh, warranted and well-managed. Okay, let's take a look at uh, why DOJ didn't pursue it. Because remember, um, Adam Driver was on, kept calling that person on the phone to see how the progress was going with the DOJ. Mm-hmm. And he finally finds out that they don't have enough admissible evidence to convict anyone. In spite of Rodriguez destroying the tapes, or the whole torture thing. Um, Jones makes the following cynical conclusion that we could probably, this is what I said to most government scandals. Number one, he said, if you go after contractors, they're indemnified. In other words, those two Air Force crackpots. Mm -hmm. Number two, if you go after the head of counterintelligence, he'll say he's following orders from the CIA director. Although I put in a caveat that the just following orders exercise should have been rendered disqualified, if not after the Nuremberg trials or Milai. You see what I'm saying there? Remember the Nazis at the Nuremberg trial? They I kept do saying, know that one. Just... I don't. Can you, can you brief me really quick on Milai? I don't know that. Milai was Lieutenant Calley and his soldiers killed, massacred A like village. 300 innocent civilians. Vietnam? In the village of Milai. Was that Vietnam? Yeah, Milai. Uh, yeah, Milai, oh, okay. Vietnam, Lieutenant Kelly. It was I've infamous. Heard it. I, didn't, I didn't know that. Right? And so when they brought, they when they interviewed a lot of these people, a lot of them were saying, I was just following orders. I was just following orders. So that whole, if it wasn't, to me, if it wasn't disqualified with Nuremberg, to me, in my, my young life and knowledge of history, the Milai massacre rendered it moot because okay you're in the military and you're given an order yes you're supposed to follow that order but if it's something that you view as as immoral you should have the right to disobey it and take your chances with the court martial or some judge or something else in our criminal justice system to say i'm not going to follow that order so that's why I say that as much as um, counterintelligence says he's following orders of the CIA, you don't always have to do that. Um, and then they say the director would just cite the president, and the president will claim national security, not to mention the veil of plausible deniability created by him by Condi Rice and others deliberately not telling him about the John Yu redefinition of torture. So... That's John, or that's um, Adam Driver's uh, cynical explanation. I forgot who it was to um, about why the DOJ backed off. Oh, I think it's yeah, it's in front of a room of people. This is the part of the film where uh, the CIA has kind of got wind of of what the report contains. In fact, they've read his full report and they're coming back and saying, "Well, here's the stuff you have to take out, and here's the stuff you can include." And, you know, uh, they are talking about like, well, um, 
you know, what I, man, I wish I had remembered the term, but they were going to use, well, I think they just used the word pseudonyms. You know, they were not going to name any actual people and just use pseudonyms. The CIA is like, no, because uh, no, people could figure out who you're talking about. And he's like, well, the, you know, the, the contractors, they're clearly, you know, uh, doing fucked up shit. And they say like, no, we got to protect those guys too. So in the end, they're not going to have uh, even names or pseudonyms. So you wouldn't be able to connect anybody that uh, did anything. And uh, uh, God, uh, he's got the really good one. Um, I think he puts this just to Feinstein's assistant, um, who was a nice little, uh, uh, nice, nice little performance in this film. Uh, you know, what, what would you think if you said, you know, if you said on such and such a date, blank was born and on such and such date, blank turned water into wine. And in such and such a date, blank was uh, crucified and returned from the dead. How would you know that blank was the same person? You know, so like, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have to say, okay, it was Jesus in all these three cases. But if they said it was like subject one, you would at least be able to connect that story. If you can't connect that story, even using, you know, fictionalized, obfuscated names, you've got no story. You've got no story. You've got nothing. Um, yeah. Which is the the huge big point of uh, the film. Um, I thought you Senator Udall's brilliant, ingenious tactic of highlighting the uh, Senate report, which was the CIA's own internal one. I thought that was ingenious, the way he did that. Right. So, yeah, let's go to our next section. Let's let's talk about the Panetta Review, um, which this film, in what I think maybe is kind of a weird way, like kind of highlights as the most dramatic part of the story. I don't necessarily think it is, but I could see how the the um, you know the storytellers and trying to craft it uh, would do so. Uh, Leon Panetta served about two years as CIA director under Barack Obama. Uh, mm -hmm. He was uh, the first. He was Obama's first CIA director. Um, he oversaw the assassination plans of Osama bin Laden, and. Um, I think this is uh, this is kind of a little off topic, but I kind of think it's interesting that he was nominated as Obama's Secretary of Defense before the assassination took place and confirmed by the Senate afterwards. This is just a matter of a few months, like like two or three months. So uh, I think it's I think it's interesting that the CIA director that planned the assassination they already kind of had an exit strategy for him to be moved into a different department before the mm -hmm. assassination took place. You in, know, in case it failed, you mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, I think yeah. that's what this tells me. Uh, because if like, if you were a hundred percent confident, it was going to succeed. Obviously you still want that guy still around. Cause he can go like, Hey, I planned the operation that got Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Uh, but instead, clearly they had doubts. Uh, they had, and doubts they could ease him out that way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And still, but still to a, you know, secretary of defense. That's sure. I'm not even sure that's a demotion. <laughs> no, no. You, they, what do they call that? Moving you sideways or horizontally or. 
yeah, CIA director kind of and, the, and the secretary of defense. Eh, yeah. He was a senator. Too. Actually, might even be a step up. Oh, yeah. He was so, a senator um, in Congress. So as we say, like, uh, the important thing to know about this is during his time as CIA director, uh, you know, do you remember, do you remember the family jewels situation from, from earlier, like the seventies or eighties or something? I'm not sure. Uh, shoot. Dave knows this stuff way better than me. There was a, a in the seventies, I think there was a CIA director that came in and, and put together a report, an internal report, you know, really with a critical eye of everything his predecessors had done at the CIA uh, and they called that the fa- they they colloquially called that the family jewels, hmm. uh, and and those did come out eventually. They weren't meant to. They were meant to be more of an internal CIA review. Uh, this is the same kind of situation as that. Um, you know, listeners, dedicated listeners to the podcast will know that we've referenced the family jewels files numerous times. The Panetta review is very similar to that. He's coming in and he's putting together. Uh, an internal review of of what his predecessors have done. And he's basically coming up with all the conclusions that this film wants us to reach, which is that the EIT program uh, didn't work, was poorly managed, and was also unnecessary in the first place. Um, so now that file exists somewhere in the CIA. Again... The way Adam, the way Daniel Jones gets this file in the movie, we just see him sitting at his computer. He's looking at his screen and he looks over to one of his colleagues and he says, Hey, are you guys seeing this? This just came up. And it's the Panetta review. And it basically backs up all of his, supports all of his claims. It shows that the CIA fundamentally knows and, and I guess tacitly agrees with um all of the criticisms of the EIT program um kind of like again, almost yeah. analogous to what i said the pentagon papers was yes yes no analogous to that and they still went ahead and did it anyway although were the uh, to your knowledge were the pentagon papers meant to be publicized or was it an no, internal it, document that was leaked no it was right it was meant to uh, it was meant for uh, Secretary of Defense McNamara to learn about Vietnam and whether we should escalate it or not. Right, and it right. gave chapter and verse why we shouldn't and why it was a qu- qu- quagmire, and it was unwinnable. But they went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was an internal review. It came out later. See, Daniel Ellsberg later released them, right? It was a whole court case too he was on the run he was making copies of them got it to the new york times and the washington post the nixon administration was trying to get them to stop it cease and desist there was a big court case that it could be published so it was in the new york times the whole i remember that daniel ellsberg was on the run and was facing jail time and he's the one that released them he was he worked for the rand corporation he was a former marine and um he started seeing this review and he said, oh, my God, I got to get this out there. And, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a whole movie on it, too. Um, it might be called oh. The Pentagon Papers. 
if you're talking about the the documentary where the filmmaker got McNamara to sit down and address that, the camera that's, directly, that's that an actual one too. But I think right, there's also a dramatic one with oh, Ellsberg okay. featured. But, but yeah, that, I know the one you're thinking of. That's excellent. Yeah. That documentary with McNamara uh, addressing the camera directly is, I think, must watch for any American citizen. Um, and he was trying to purge his book, too, since then. It's pathetic and it's sad. He's trying to purge his soul with his apologies, but those veterans don't want to hear it. It's like, we don't want to hear it. You know, the Vietnam veterans who have seen that? Yeah. Why yeah. didn't you say something, especially when LBJ relieved him back in the 60s uh he used to work for ford motor corporation then lbj gave him another job i want to say it was the un or something i'm not sure but he remained silent all those critical years during the war and then many decades after the war was over he he does this whole mea culpa in books and films and it's like the vietnam veterans which i don't blame them it's like i don't want to hear it now why didn't you speak up when you could have done something sure Let's get back to this Panetta review. Um, the way that it shows up in the film is a little dicey, in my opinion, because like we talked about before, like the CIA freaks out. When, okay, so he gets it, right? In the, I'll just first say what we see in the film. In the film, we see he just finds it on the computers that the CIA is providing him files to. They're just like uploading stuff. I mean, the place is air-gapped, so there's probably a technician that brings in a hard drive every morning and, like, physically uploads uh, new files. Um, mm -hmm. But according to the film, the CIA gave it to him, just along with everything else. Uh, but when they find out he has it, they flip the fuck out and get very upset, and they go after him hard. Uh, because, you know, again, like, the Panetta Review, just basically, it validates the report. You know, it it's it lines up what the CIA said internally with what Jones is also saying happened, um, which would have been fine if they didn't deny it. Right. So real quick, I just want to put some pins in on like what might have actually happened, even though I'd said at the top of the show, it's not really my purview. But um, I wonder if the film is lying to us a little bit. I wonder if Jones actually got that report from a source that was illegitimate, which is what the CIA is claiming. I also mm -hmm. wonder if, uh, you know, like we, we have the, the notion of someone, someone at the CIA is supposed to be vetting this stuff and stopping certain documents from getting to Jones in the first place. We also know, or we're given to believe that there are a lot of, you know, loyal patriotic people at the CIA that very much disagree with and feel deeply uncomfortable with the EIT program. One of my thoughts is like maybe one of those people that was in charge of vetting looked at it and said, you know what? This is just going to be like my little side note, side uh, subtle little bit of whistleblowing. Like I'm going to let this one go through. Uh, because they thought it was important enough. I think there's a lot of possibilities, but it is kind of what majorly the reason I spend so much time like racking my brain about this is because my understanding of document handling within the CIA is that it's fucking tight. Like they know 
every document, like they don't just know who wrote it and all the names that are in it, but every time someone reads it or is allowed to read it, that goes into a log, you know, like they know who's looked at it, uh, who's been given a copy, blah, blah, blah. And so much of this stuff with the Panetta review, it's very difficult for me to square with my understanding of how document handling at least is supposed to be done at the CIA. I am really kind of like weirded out about the fact that he just prints it out and walks out of that place with it in, in his attache case. And then he's not searched in, in well, all the other, but it in shows all him. the other movies that I've seen where, and, and these are, you know, dramatized movies that are not even trying to be realistic. Some, well, actually some of them are trying to be historical, but these secure facilities and the handling of secure documents is so much more tightly regulated than. But it shows seen. him right from the beginning. He goes in and out, and he has that conversation with the guy at the desk that asks him all those questions. Right, that goes through the motions, and the very last time when he does have the Panetta report in his briefcase, he doesn't actually say, "I don't I have it." He says, "Have I a good know. night." Right. Yeah. But it, but it kind of shows the lack of data. You know, they're friends. I don't think it's supposed to work that way. <laughs> yeah, but people are human. That's true. But I also think it's kind of fuel for my little pet theory that maybe he actually didn't get it uh, from yeah. there and that the movie is hey. covering covering for Could Jones. Be. Um, yeah. Because actually, I mean, the fact of him taking, and let's not, let's not sugarcoat it, the fact of him taking that file out of that office... I think actually does constitute treason and espionage. That's what Daniel Ellsberg did. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. why the shit hit the fan when Daniel Ellsberg took it out and made copies of it for weeks and then turned it over to the New York Times. So, yeah. Wow. That's why Daniel Ellsberg almost landed in jail until he got it to the New York Times. And the New York Times took it to court and uh, the court ruled in their favor. But, yeah. So uh, when Jones finds the Panetta report, he decides it might be of uh, later potential value. That's why he makes a printout of it, hides it in his desk. Uh, it's Udall, Senator Udall, also a member of Feinstein-led Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, that at this point he's hearing enough that he really wants to push this, this report forward. He's just saying we just are missing like a little bit of piece of something like if there was some kind of documentation that we had that said that the CIA knew, basically he's, without knowing it, he's asking for something like the Panetta Review. Jones says, well, in fact, Senator, I do have something like that. And he gives it to you, doll. So, yeah, it's ingenious what he does is that the CIA, he... Basically, he highlights the accuracy of Jones's report by saying how pleased he is that it reflected the CIA's own internal study that put them in an awkward position of contradicting their own report if they protested Jones's report, which was ingenious. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does anger Feinstein. Uh, I'm kind of. I'm kind of weirded out that Jones blindsided her uh, by not telling her that he was going to give this to Udall. Um, it looks like she did know about it, uh, from, from her response on screen. I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Um, so she, she said some straight a couple times when he, when she thinks he oversteps his bounds a little bit. 
and then yeah. he backs off. Well, I think she leaves. I think she smartly leaves her assistant to do that for her. Yeah. Um. You know, she just well, leaves the, right. But she, she makes has her to exit speak from up. the room with a cryptic yeah. remark where he's like, "What the fuck was that?" And it's the assistant that has to lay it out for him, right? And say, "Like, but after look, that, Dan, when he it's not your name when that's he going on at, this report." <laughs> but right when he snaps at the assistant in front of her, that's when she says, "Are you working for me or the report?" And be careful before you answer that. Oh yeah, yeah. And then he backs off. Again, national treasure, Annette Benning. Um, well, I think that goes to show how obsessive he got. They make a big deal about, they show that he doesn't have family obligations where the other folks do. He doesn't even know that it's Thanksgiving. He's totally uh, wrapped yeah, up in yeah. this to the point of obsession. So I think that's part of it too, obsessed, that yeah. he has no life but that. And that John Hamm, I think that's his name from Mad Men, he mm -hmm. tries to talk him. You know, the guy from the Obama administration. Um, so in this yeah, in this in this film, the important thing about uh, Udall, uh, you know, um, demonstrating that the Panetta review has gotten out of its cage, so to speak, uh, the CIA freaks the fuck out about this and they make a, an important and disastrous blunder. I think it's my number one worst tradecraft of the film where they go into the skiff, you know, that room that is the agreed upon interface between the CIA and the Senate. And, uh, they search it and mm -hmm. they grab all of Jones's files. And, you know, because they're not, I guess, I don't know. Well, I guess we're meant to think it's because the CIA is not dumb. And if they know that if Udall has the report, that he probably got it from Jones, that it leaked through the skiff. And so they raid the skiff, which is essentially the CIA spying on the Senate. Full stop, unconstitutional as fuck. Minus, I'll, I'll call this minus America points for the CIA, even thinking this was permissible for a moment. Like, this yeah. is literally the CIA not only spying on the American people, which they're not allowed to do. This is the CIA spying on the American fucking government. United States Senate. And Feinstein says that to uh, whatever his name is, the, the new CIA director. Yeah. Right. So that's that's really the real importance of the Panetta review uh, in this film. I mean, there's more notes we have to to talk about this here uh this was um this is uh immediately after uh obama got reelected and had put uh a, a guy named brannon up for cia director yeah. he's also right. a character that the film paints in a in a pretty mm, villainous light i think yeah. uh to yeah. be clear to be clear brennan did come out and publicly admit that the cia rate now this didn't show up in the movie but in reality, I think it was just like two months that it took for him to come out and publicly apologize for and say this was a violation and shouldn't have happened. Um, so there's that. Uh, of course, uh, you note uh, that Brennan claims he's got documents that back up his claim that the EIT program did help save lives. But Jones has a brilliant response for that. This was your note. Yep. Yeah. He says, uh, well, how could that be when we had 
when it was CIA information that we had. Um, and we said we were told we'd have all relevant information. And then he comes back and said, basically, you don't think we'd give you everything. Right, but that was the agreement that you would give us right. everything. Right, and that's where you think he lied. It wasn't that he withheld anything. You think he, he lied about it. I think I think right. he's lying about having withheld the, the, the having secret documents that he yeah, didn't to make up to back up his skip. thesis that EIT worked and it wasn't as bad as the report made it out to be. Yeah, to back that up. He claims right. he had information to back that up. Yeah. Yeah, and they have a sharp they have a sharp exchange in in which, you know, uh CIA yeah. guys like saying like, "Hey Jones, if you have any information that didn't come from us, then you're in violation of the agreement because you're not supposed to be interviewing your report is entire is supposed to be entirely based on the information that we give you. And Jones is saying, right. well, well, in that case, you can't come at me and say that I don't have all the information because if I don't have all the information, then you're withholding something. Right. So someone right. here, someone here is full of shit. The film definitely yep. is pointing at Brennan. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, really good catch, I thought, uh, on your part. Um, in real life, real quick, uh, Brennan does claim that he opposed waterboarding. Um, although, but, that, but then Jones points out that he was involved right from the beginning and knew all about it. He says, well, that not necessarily right. Uh, right. Not necessarily right from the beginning. Uh, we have had a few uh, turnovers of CIA directors. Well, no, uh, not as a head, not as head, but he was oh, involved oh. in the CIA during the right. whole thing. Oh, right. Of course, of course, of course. Um, you know, Jones comes back, back, and and I mean, Brennan's statement is that he only uh, opposed it in like private conversations with people. But Jones states in the film, like, I just went through five years of your emails, and you didn't mention your objections once in on the record. Yeah. So your object, you know, your objections are they're meaningless unless you're willing to put them in writing, right? Yeah. Right. Right. So yeah, this is uh this is right at one one hour seven minutes of the film. Um and it's really the heart of the matter, I think, uh of 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 the story of this of this movie. Here we have Brennan admitting their problems and mistakes, but disputes two key points. He disputes that the program was mismanaged and ineffective, and he disputes that the CIA misled the press the White House and the Congress regarding the program. Those two things, his two uh, uh, objections are the reason that uh, we took these like one and two at a time. Like our second section of this podcast was talking about how, no, the program was mismanaged. It was ineffective. That's virtually when he's saying that is virtually the whole report in those two abbreviated objections. You could say that, those two things were basically everything Jones found. Mm. So uh, let's see. We got to the breach. Um, Jones gets attacked uh, kind of like personally. The CIA decides like we're going to try to discredit him. Uh, there's a whole threat program against him. Uh, like they did Daniel Osberg. Oh, of course, of course. So now they're going to charge this guy. Uh, with unconstitutional activities where the DOJ, you know, is just like, 
happy to say we don't have any evidence. But right now, I mean, it is just a threat. And a threat is all you really need, um, yeah. possibly, uh, to just discredit this guy, uh, uh, throw shade. In one of, uh, I think, I think the film's best scenes, uh, it's kind of foreshadowed uh, or, or prequeled at the beginning of the film. Um, Corey Stoll, uh, who I'm starting to uh, think might be one of the best character actors of my generation, uh, plays as uh, Daniel Jones' lawyer. And uh, here, uh-huh. here's a good time for me to highlight uh, something I really appreciate about this film is that uh, Jones does obey the edicts and the agreement between the Senate and the CIA is that he's not allowed to talk to anybody outside of those two agencies about his report that puts him in a tricky situation. Um, you know, when he's talking, uh, uh, has conversations with Matthew Reese, who plays the, uh, uh, New York times Time. reporter. And also yeah. even when talking to his own, like possible private attorney, you know, he has to navigate this, like, you know, they're asking him questions about what's going on. He's like, ah, I can't answer that. And he, he yeah, uses, that's to his like, credit. It is, it is. And it's also just to the movie's credit. And I, I just, it's something I really appreciated. Not only as far as like storytelling, but also as, um, I don't know. I just, I just liked it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, gives him, makes him more of an honorable protagonist. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, especially the line where, uh, when he's talking to Matthew Reese, uh, who's called in because like his lawyer, after hearing what he can hear about the situation, he says like, okay, dude, you're in a lot of trouble here and this is going to be really fucking expensive for you. Uh, I don't think you actually have a legal problem here. I think you have a daylight problem and I think, you know, people that could solve that. Uh, it's a great line. It leads Jones to, uh, meet again with the New York times reporter yeah, and again, say very little and nothing that violates his conditions of what he's allowed to say. When Matthew Reese presses him on it, we get another great line: "Is like, dude, you're the New York Times, uh, you know, intelligence correspondent. You can figure out the rest." And he's right; Reese can figure yeah. out the rest, and and so. I think we get, uh, you know, there's a New York Times article that comes out after the Matthew Reese character does some more of his investigation, um, and uh, and and they meet before we uh, finalize the film and get out of there with, you know, with what is the remnants of the report that are going to come out to public. Uh, there is that uh, parking garage scene. <sighs> Uh, the New York Times reporter's question to Jones when he's asked him why, if the CIA knew of the ineffectiveness of torture, they pursued it anyway. And Jones gives him his fear and shame explanation, which I thought was pretty interesting. And he said the CIA felt fear and shame after 9-11, but fear and shame don't make for better policy decisions. And the fact that the people who we captured didn't look like us or believe in the same things we do made it that much easier to do the things we did. So once the CIA program started, they had to keep telling people it worked, even if it wasn't true. 
Their own position was that if it didn't work, it was illegal. So they represented, misrepresented the results. Yep. Well, it's like that Gina Haspel, con- uh, the Bernadette comment is like, uh, at you know, in retrospect, you couldn't actually determine whether it was legal or not until you knew what the result was. Yeah. That's not how that shit's supposed to happen. Um, I think, too, what he's saying in here, and it's something we don't often talk about, is that in any conflict, wherever, it, and we try to dehumanize the enemy, and you know, some of the racist things that were called the Viet Cong, right? And uh, the Germans, the Russians, um, and these people, you know, some of the horrible things that have been said about Middle Eastern people, you know, we try to, I mean, in all wars, you try to dehumanize the enemy, right? And when he said, people don't look like us or believe in the things we do, right? They don't look like us. Uh, As George Carlin said, we don't do much anymore, but bomb the shit out of brown people, (laughs) you know, Um, and don't believe in the same things we do. Okay. Different, different religion. I think that's saying a lot. In other words, it's easy to bomb the shit out of people that don't look like us and believe in the same things we do. Um, And you see an interesting thing right now um, with going on, I think with Ukraine and I think some of the, difference those ukrainian white refugees are treated than some of the ones south of the border or from the middle east people from syria syria and yemen two very brutal wars much more brutal than what's going on in ukraine have been going on for a lot longer but they're brown people right we don't see them on the news ukrainians uniquely look exactly like us they're fucking i mean they're white christians they're white middle-class Christians. It's kind of the elephant in the room. And I think Jones is saying a lot like us. They don't look like us. They're brown skin. And they don't believe in the same things we do. They're Islamic and not Christian. And uh, I think that's saying a lot with with how we wage war and treat prisoners um, and the whole torture thing as well. Yeah, it's really unfortunate, and I agree, uh, sadly, that it is really hard for me to imagine this having this these this torture program having been applied to white middle class Christians of another country, yep. even one that we were yep. at war with, even one that had attacked us, even one that had committed a, a terrorist attack on the scale of nine eleven against us. I just, I just don't yep. believe it. Before we go to uh, debriefing on this film, I do want to make just a few notes on uh, assertions that are made in this film that might be challenged by the real people uh, that are portrayed in the film. Uh, Just a reminder, uh, at least my analysis of this film is as a piece of media, don't rely on me to uh, know the truth of what actually happened. First off, from my understanding, Gina Haspel, who's renamed as Bernadette in this film. She was, I mean, she was, in fact, it's not just from my understanding, was promoted as our first female CIA director. And that the reason she was put up for the job was that the CIA wanted someone that did know all of the dirty, fucked up shit that we did and was intimately familiar with it, but was also 
equally committed to making sure that shit never happened again. Of course, number one job is like, you know, protect the blue, just like, you know, the cops have that line. Like they just will protect each other. Like no matter what fucking shit they do. Yeah. 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 Uh, But I just want to say that's my understanding. I I also want to say CIA director Brennan, who's also painted pretty villainous in this film. um, It is a fact. Let's not forget. He did very quickly admit that the CIA intrusion on the Senate files was illegal and ill-advised. Like it only took him two. It only took him two months. uh, (laughs) Right. But that's when, that's when really Feinstein came at him with the checks, whole checks and balances thing and put him in a corner. Sure. I don't want to, I don't want to say it's, I'm not trying to say it was like entirely altruistic on his part. You know, maybe it was just like people had the screws in on him, but, um, you know, that, that horrible, horrible, very obviously unconstitutional event. As soon as people got any wind of that, that's why that's going to make just the fact they even did it or even thought for a second, it was an okay idea is going to make, uh, uh, you know, worse things. Um, finally, finally, just a note about the, um, the two guys that are painted the worst in this film, possibly. And that's, uh, James E. Mitchell and his partner. Give me a second while I scroll up to the top of my notes. It was, uh, Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. Um, I just thought, like, they're painted as so fucking slime. Like, there's even that scene where they're cackling over champagne in their private jet and counting up all the money that they that they made. Uh, they it, did everything but twirl their mustache. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I feel, I, I would feel bad about not at least mentioning, like, listeners that are sufficiently interested in finding out the whole truth of everything just please consider that he did co-write a book in 2016 the title is gonna tell you maybe everything you need to know about the uh bias of this book it's called enhanced Ter- interrogation inside the minds and motives of the islamic terrorists trying to destroy america I haven't read the book. I did read several reviews of the, of it. I found one that I found was uh, the most unbiased possible. He still does come off as kind of trying to cover his ass, but I just think that if I, I just want to (laughs) say, sorry for making such a point of this. Uh, Anybody that's, completely interested in knowing the whole picture i think you would have to hear his side of the story uh whether you uh, decide that it's a, a pile of bullshit or not but if you if you're not willing to listen to the the even entertain the uh observations of the people you disagree with then that's where the country gets into real trouble we're off to debriefing unless you want to nope no, I'm just saying, if he really wanted more folks to read it and give his side of the story, that was not a good title <laughs> to choose. No shit. No shit. <laughs> that is not, that is a total raw, raw red meat. That's that's how I found so much problems finding what I consider to be an unbiased review of the book. Because 
90% of the shit I found was like people saying like, Hey, yeah, no, if you read this book, then you'll understand. You'll, you'll, you'll understand all this fucking CIA bullshit. Bunch of fucking MAGA people. Uh, uh, MAGA people, please keep listening to my podcast. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. I like movies that don't have spy movies that don't necessarily have car chases and shoot 'em ups although I do appreciate those. Uh, I like this one because I thought it told a gripping morality play about who we are, who we aspire to be. In spite of our enemies, a lot of people say, oh, you got to fight fire with fire. If they're torturing us, we got to torture them. Um, so many times, and I think this shows this, the real enemy turns out to be ourselves when we stray from our ideals. Um, so I really would give it a five for its well-executed story delivered without sensationalism, but also its warning and reminder to us of who we are and who we aspire to be in these troubling times when our democracy seems to be at risk on so many fronts. Well said. I'm, um, uh, you know, I appreciate the film uh, for the same reasons as you. I don't appreciate it as much as you do. I didn't enjoy watching this film. I can see why a lot of people didn't really uh, grab onto it. It's uh, it's an important film. I don't. I didn't find it particularly enjoyable. It's one of those cases where I enjoyed learning more about these events through the film than I did actually as, as something I would, I would want to watch. I definitely don't want to see it again. I kind of think I would rather this had been a documentary. I would rather see uh, all this effort and all this money have been put into uh, hearing John Brennan's side of the story, uh, interviews with John Yu, uh, interviews with Mitchell and, and the other guy. Um, I think the torture scenes are over the top. And if I'm wrong for believing that they're over the top in the way they're represented, I don't, I don't dispute the shit happened. I just think they're overly dramatized. Uh, that's, that's my suspicion. Mitchell's performance is so weird to me. He's intentionally slimy at any point. Like he doesn't, he doesn't set the same tone. I think as the rest of the actors. He's got and that growl the, to his voice too. It's almost, is he the one with the growl? To his he's voice. the bearded. He's the bearded guy that really seems to be enjoying himself. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and his performance. If at any time the director didn't have, I think it's it's the director allowing that actor to give that kind of ultra, uh, like you said, mush mush tat mustache twirling performance. Uh, that makes me somewhat questioned the bias of the director uh mm -hmm. you know i mean it's it's his performance more than anything that really shows to me a very strong bias of the director and maybe that guy was that bad of an asshole but portraying him as such like you said doesn't bring like it's one of the reasons like you said like the the people that need to see this film won't that kind of performance is one of the major reasons why. Um, well, I also look at it, it a little differently, too. I, My big, and it was one of my bad tradecraft, was 
Um, what did I say about that? Um, well, all right. While you're looking it up, I can just wrap it up. Would have been better as a documentary, two stars. All right. Now, Tradecraft. Um, the, the fact, to me, worse than them, the fact that the CIA allowed itself to be manipulated by those two crackpots who had... I mean, all you'd have to do, they find out in the end they had real junk science uh, and they successfully peddled their EIT program. And it's because the CIA took them on because they said what they wanted to hear. They wanted to embrace that kind of thing. So they did. So I I don't find as much fault with those two crackpots. There are, there's always crackpots out there like that. <laughs> to me, the CIA should have been better about researching them uh, and not have been manipulated by them with it was their. Um, that was a hundred percent on my list. Didn't make my top three. Um, let me give my my worst my worst three, and then you can run through your worst five because uh, you have <laughs> you have you have failed you have failed to understand the assignment. You got to narrow it down to three. I, it was presumptuous got, of me, wasn't it? All right. Well, but if you got if you if you got five, I'm I, I can't. Yeah. I can't stop okay. you, but my worst, my worst <laughs> three, uh, which I didn't get to put in the document. So I got to read off my, um, off my book here. Uh, worst, worst. Oh yeah. The document handling. It, it just, it doesn't match. It doesn't match anything that I believe hap happens in real life for a bunch of reasons, which I mentioned. Uh, my number two is the CIA raid on the Senate. Just again, I already litigated this. I can't, I can't believe they made that fucking stupid of a mistake uh and my number one is absolutely 183 times are you fucking kidding me that it yeah. takes you 183 tries of doing something and it not working mm -hmm. i mean how big of a red flag do you want um five was the cia exaggerated uh Subdaya's importance as number three or four in Al-Qaeda to justify going ahead with EIT, even though he wasn't part of Al-Qaeda leadership at all. Okay, that was five. Four, the CIA, I said this, allowed itself to be manipulated by those two Air Force crackpots who successfully peddled their EIT program with questionable scientific research. Came very close to making my top three. What, what are three, your actually CIA, top three? The three, the CIA unlawfully searched the Senate computers in violation of separation of powers. Same as my number, number two. The intelligence that the CIA ignored Lincoln KSM to big bin Laden in not only not connecting the dots to thwart 9-11, but also not acting on paying the $2,000 to asset X who claimed to have direct asset access to KSM when they did pay him the two years later, admitted his connection to KSM and that that had nothing to do with EIT. My worst trade craft was the whole torture program to begin with. Um, not only they, because they knew, they knew it was not only in, ineffective, but inhumane. And it took them 119 detainees before they would stop it and conclude that in the future, they should use rapport building that they already knew the FBI talked about. And, um, and that at least a, uh, for the C and the, the FBI had using and advocating beforehand only for the CIA to sneer at and ignore only to come around after 119 detainees were put through EIT where at least a quarter of them should never have been detained. 
on to my best tradecraft. Uh, I struggled to find good tradecraft in this film, uh, not due to the fact uh, film's lack of realism, but just that tradecraft is not really the focus of this film. Um, my number three uh, just goes to the skiff, the secure compartmented intelligence facility. Uh, I just, I just like it as a concept. As I've said before, I have some doubts about the, like the portray- the film's portrayal of, about the actual um, integrity of this room. But as a concept, this kind of single interface room between two agencies, like all intelligence needs to either come in or out of this one spot, seems like a great way to manage uh, sensitive uh, information. Uh, number two. Um, yeah, again, not super trade crafty, but uh, some of my favorite scenes in this movie were the the little actor scenes uh, of where Daniel Jones needs to communicate certain information to you know the reporter or to his lawyer, uh, but can't you know is is very strict about the things he can and cannot say, and uses hand gestures to uh, indicate like I can't answer that, you know, and and mm-hmm. you know maneuver the conversation in a way so that. It, it just it just was fun um, for me. Number one, again, I I, str- I really tried hard. I really wanted to try to commit to finding my top three without using this one, but I couldn't. And it's something that doesn't even happen in the film. It's just something that happened that just gets described as having happened. But it's so good, and that's the FBI's uh, tape trick that they used on uh, Zubaida. Uh, essentially they had just one, they had a phone tap on him. Okay. Okay. There was one time he left the phone off the hook for an extended period of time. They got a recording of that. They played that recording for him and showed him a big box full of tapes uh, and let him draw his own conclusions that that meant that his, you know, his uh, house was bugged and that he had no reason to try to conceal anything. Because they had him and they knew everything. But of course, those tapes were blank. Uh, it's genius. It's fun. Um, I'd like to see a movie where we actually get to see that happen. Um, also, I would say ironic yeah. because not only are they building rapport, they're using their wits and psychology, unlike, ironically, those two crackpot psychologists <laughs> who did not use psychology but resorted to brute force. So there's a little irony there. Um they, the FBI, so fun, used his wits and psychology to pull that off. And the two psychologists, ironically, did not. They used brute force. Yeah, so there's an irony there. It's definitely, that is a good use of the word. Uh, your three best. Okay. My third, I really liked the way that uh, Senator Udall his ingenious tactic of highlighting the accuracy of the Jones Senate report by saying how it reflected the CIA's own internal study that put them in an awkward position of contradicting their own report when protesting the Senate report. He got that out in the open, and uh, that was ingenious, I thought. Um, I like it. Number two was when Jones secretly moved a copy of a portion of the Panetta review, which was the CIA's own internal review that mirrored the Senate review into a safe in the Senate Hart building. Okay, that 
I think you could call tradecraft. And uh, best tradecraft, number one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jones, Jones and his committee's dogged and unrelenting research of his 6,200-page report that, as the New York Times reporter characterized, as being told to build a boat that they had no intention of sailing. Uh, he gets an E for effort for that. They got an abbreviated portion of it, but those are my three. Park benches, because this is a, you know, not strictly speaking a spy film and it's just tangential, giving it a proper park bench rating is going to be kind of difficult and we might have to fudge the rules a little bit. I get that. It's. I want to go back to something, though, you said before about how most spy movies are trying to conceal something. And on face value, this one doesn't look like it is. However, when you look at our main character, the Adam Driver character, mm-hmm. he's concealing in a big way his intent. Down deep, he wants to get this thing out, but he's struggling within himself. Now, maybe you might think this is a reach for concealment but he's struggling within himself what to do. And in the end, you and I both admire the fact that he, that he does not give it to the New York times, but with his, I'm actually really on the fence about that one (laughs) with his hiding the, um, Panetta report, right. When he put that aside, that's right. That's a concealed, that's concealing something. And I would argue that he's concealing and wrestling with his intent to just blow the thing, get the thing out there, um, like putting that ray of light or sunshine on it that his lawyer told him. So I think you could, I think you can rationalize a bit that there was that bit of concealment trade tradecraft there, the wrestling within himself. And when he tried to hide that uh, bit in the drawer, um, it's beyond to me a spy movie. It's more of a morality play. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why it, that's why it's going to be tricky to rate. Try um, it, try it, try it this way: um, the report versus Munich. Which is a more accurate portrayal of tradecraft? I oh well, that Munich actually had more tradecraft, so that's going to win. Like you just listed all those other movies where this doesn't have much tradecraft. So same yeah. same question same question for Argo. Yeah. Yeah, there's more tradecraft because they're working at the concealing and what they're going to do and how they're going to try to get those hostages out of there. Hostages out of there. So the whole thing is tradecraft. Yeah. So that's my rationale for just uh, dinging it just a half a point below those films. We're still giving it the respect of being realistic. We still have definitely a very high star rating. Uh, uh, 3.5 park benches for um, the blank report. And uh, next next month, oh guys, we're gonna get started on a on a classic. We're gonna get back to our uh, core roots of what our fans really seem to be interested in, which is uh, the the cool classic John Le Carré stuff. We're finally gonna do the Spy Who Came In from the Cold. So look forward to that, and I will look forward to talking with Fred about that one uh, probably in about a month. Sounds good. It's been fun. Later, nerds. <laughs> yep. Night, night. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org.
Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.